word of prayer and we'll put it into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for this day that we set aside to simply come before you in worship. We pray that you be with Pastor Frank Slater as he will bring the word for us. And we thank you for this time we have together this morning in Sunday school to think through the, the gospel of Luke. Help us to see things, Lord, that we've never seen before, to learn more about you, your will for our lives, Lord, and uh, just to get lost in the wonder of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in our um, desire to know him and to make him known to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so uh, a couple things, preliminary things. So, gospel of Luke is 24 chapters, and we've got 12 weeks, so we're doing two chapters a week, so this is going to be, you know, pretty quick pace study. So the ideal situation is that each week you read those two chapters leading up to the next Sunday school, and we've got handouts. Does anybody need a handout for, for this lesson? We have extras here if you need it. And then uh, you can take with you today, I've got the handouts for next week right here, okay? And you can use it for personal devotion or, or family devotion. Um, go through the chapters and, um, you know, spend your time just, just really thinking deeply on the Gospel of Luke. I want to run over kind of the way these questions are set up, just so you get a little familiar with kind of my methodology here. So we've got what I'm calling uh, grammar questions. And what I mean by that, so I, I'm, you know, I'm a classical teacher, so I'm using classical methodology here. But grammar doesn't mean just what you're thinking of, like diagramming sentences and things like that right now. Uh, but it also means just the, the what is the case of the situation, the, the facts, the information, right? And so what tends to happen a lot of time in evangelical Bible studies is, is they'll read the text and they'll say, how does that make you feel? What does that mean to you, right? And what we don't want to do is that. We want to ask questions that can be answered directly in the text of Scripture. And so what grammar questions do is try to ascertain the, the who, the what, the where, the when, but not the why. Not yet, anyway, right? Because we don't want to get to why before we've got to just the details, okay? So then we move on to what I call the logic questions. And the logic questions focus on the why. Like, why did this happen? What is the author trying to communicate by all of these details? All that, and, and so we're trying to see um, conclusions that he's drawing, and we're trying to see uh, themes that are being developed in the text. And then the last section of questions, again, calling uh, rhetoric questions. And so after we have done, figured out what is the case, and we've started thinking about why it's that way. Now there'll be a question or two in each, each study that asks you to express your own thoughts about something that Christians may have some dialogue on, right? So sometimes, uh, even after we've done good, proper exegesis of Scripture, there's still multiple points of view, or there may be different nuances to how Christians tend to understand these things, and that gives us a chance to kind of discuss them, okay? So that's kind of the format of these questions, just so you have an idea of why I'm doing it this way. Uh, but again, the really important thing is that before we ever try to make any kind of interpretation of the text, that we actually understand what the text says, right? So that's why we, we start off and kind of go in this order of things. So um, Luke 1 and 2 is actually kind of a, 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 Luke 1 especially is kind of a long chapter. So what I want to recommend is that we, we go ahead and jump into the questions and start discussing but let's keep referring back to the text, okay? So, number one, who is the author of this gospel? Do raise your hand and participate. This is a participation class, okay? Who is the author of this gospel? Luke. Okay, I'm glad you said that. Can you tell me what Bible verse tells you that Luke wrote this gospel? There is no Bible verse in Luke that says he wrote it. Okay, good, 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 right? So, this, this gospel is actually what's called formally anonymous, right? It nowhere actually says, I, Luke, am writing this with my own hand, or anything like that, right? Um, does anybody know, why do we call this the Gospel of Luke, then? Does anybody have any idea? Any thoughts? So, yeah. Well, there are references in the text where it says we, and talking about Luke and Paul together traveling. Good, uh, yeah. So I'm assuming the early church also held the tradition of 
Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, so we know, as we'll see in a minute, why we know, but we know that whoever wrote this also wrote the book of Acts, right? And we do see that somewhere in the midst of the book of Acts, that the language changes from going third person, right, saying what Paul is doing out there on his own with Peter or whoever, to saying uh, we, like he's along on a journey at some point. And we also know from the epistles of Paul that Luke comes to be a companion of Paul, and we have early church testimony that says that the Gospel of Luke was, in fact, written by Luke, the, the doctor, right? Um, now, who is this Gospel addressed to? If you look there at the very beginning of uh, Luke chapter 1, who is this Gospel addressed to? Theophilus. Okay? Uh, and not only is it Theophilus, but in, in Luke, we see it's most excellent Theophilus, right? Um, which is an interesting expression. Why, why might he call him most excellent Theophilus? Does anybody know some of the, the thoughts on that? Have you ever heard of this? No? Yeah, it's at least, it's at least guessed by some. We really don't know is the, the ultimate answer, but it's a guess by some that um, he may be a Roman official of some sort that Luke is addressing and writing an orderly account of all the things that he's heard. So there's a couple different theories around that. One, Theophilus is a new believer, um, but he is needing further instruction on this message of Jesus. Uh, another theory is that this is actually somebody who may be a magistrate that's going to preside over Paul's, uh, Paul's case because he appealed his way up to Rome and to Caesar and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's actually a, a theory that says Luke enacts as a trial brief for Paul's case to make a, to make a strong case for why uh, Paul should certainly not receive the death penalty, but why they ought to believe that what he's saying is true, right? We don't really know, but it's interesting, right? Um, and here's what's also interesting. If you want to turn just real briefly, keep your finger here, but go to Acts chapter 1. Um, what we see in Acts chapter 1 is that Theophilus is again the, the person that this is being addressed to. Uh, but you also notice that the, the title, Most Excellence, is dropped in Acts chapter 1. Now again, we're just kind of speculating at this point, but um, it, it could be that there has been a change in the situation, that maybe Theophilus has become a brother in Christ, and so no longer need that title of kind of, you know, but we don't really know. But here's one of the really interesting facts. Uh, the name Theophilus, does anybody know what that means? If you have any knowledge in Greek, you might be able to put it, put it together. So, Thea, Theon, right, is God, and uh, like if you hear the Philus is a reference to love or brotherly love, right? So this is a lover of God. That's the name of the guy's name, right? So um, it's kind of interesting because some have suggested, well, maybe... Maybe this isn't actually a real person. Maybe Luke is just addressing the church, right? Lovers of God, right? Uh, no, I think it's a real person, right? But nonetheless, it is an interesting idea. Um, it is an interesting notion that this person's name means lover of God, right? So if you, if you think of the word uh, philosophy, right? It's the same Greek prefix that philo, that love, that brotherly love. We have Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? And then uh, Sophia is wisdom. So that's, that's where you get some of these words from. Alright, so what, according, back in Luke chapter 1, what is the stated reason for writing this gospel? Why is this gospel being written? Yes. Yes. Excellent. So he wants to give him a clear account so that he says he can have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. Okay. So again, that language kind of indicates that maybe this is a, a new believer or a new disciple, but again, we're not 100% sure on that. But nonetheless, he has, in some way, shape, or form, been hearing things about Jesus, been hearing things about the whole Christian movement. And so Luke has put this orderly account together so that he might have a, a clearer picture, more certainty about what the case happens to be concerning Jesus and the message that these disciples are preaching. Um, and so what were the means, according to the good verse 2, what were the means used to, compa to compile the narrative contained in this gospel? 
counts. Eyewitness accounts, exactly, yeah. So this is something that's kind of unique, too, when we start thinking about the, the books of Luke and Acts, right? Um, Luke has kind of the uh, investigative journalist approach, right, to writing the Gospel of Luke especially, and then also Acts up to the point where it becomes, as we've stated, Luke actually ends up being on the journey somewhere along the way in Acts as well, so he becomes first-hand knowledge at a certain turn of things. Um, but I, I think this is interesting. So when we think about the Gospels, so we have Matthew and John, which we know were disciples, apostles of Christ. So they were eyewitnesses. Um, church history, church tradition tells us that Peter uh, is actually the one kind of behind Mark's gospel because Mark was uh, sitting at the feet of Peter's teaching, right? And so a lot of uh, early church witness to that is to say that he essentially pinned Peter's gospel, right? So that's almost a, it's a very close account. In fact, actually, in the, the gospel of Mark, there is... There are some who think Mark himself is actually in the Gospel of Mark. He's the one that runs away naked at the very end of the book. <laughs> but that's an interesting. So when the, he's following the Jesus being arrested, right, they try to lay hands on him, they grab his cloak, and he just runs away, start naked. Some people say that's actually Mark. I don't know. But anyway, uh, but nonetheless, he's pretty close to it. So Luke, though, is a Gentile. Um, and so he has become a believer through the preaching ministry of the, the apostles and other disciples, right? Uh, and so he has he's taken it upon himself to investigate things thoroughly and put together an orderly account. Um, any of you guys have read, like, uh, Lee Strobel books, you know, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, you know? It's kinda, it kind of makes me think of that, you know? I mean, he's just really investigating these things and, and seeing what happens to be the case. And so... Uh, who knows how, how many people he's talked to. I mean, based off of some of the early Luke account, you think he's probably, maybe, at least, interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? You know, because of the information he has there. We can't know for sure, but it's a, it's a reasonable guess. Um, now, look at verses um, 8 through 23. To whom is the angel Gabriel sent, and for what purpose? Whom is the angel Gabriel sent, and for what purpose? Zechariah. Okay, he sent to Zechariah. Good. And what's the what's the point of his coming to Zechariah? They'll have a son. Okay, and have a son. Um, and this son is is not just anybody, but he is a very specific person. Uh, he is the one who is going to come before the Messiah. He's the one promised in Malachi, this, this forerunner, right? Um, and so Jesus will actually later say that John is the greatest of prophets among men and that if you will accept it, he is Elijah, right? Which is interesting, an interesting statement, right? Now, it doesn't mean that sort of weird reincarnation sense. I've heard people try to use that kind of notion. You know, it's not what he's talking about. But he is the one who takes up the office of Elijah uh, in, in this prophetic message, right? So what does um, what happens to Zechariah when he encounters this angel? What what when he expresses some doubts? What is the result of his doubt? That's right. Which is probably about eight days after the baby's born, right? Yeah, because uh, he's, he's a good, faithful Jew. So they wait and and do that when they go to the temple and everything. Um, what is different though? about Mary's response than his than Zechariah's response to the angel. So go ahead and look at verses uh, I think 34 to 37. Right, right. So a lot of times people uh, will look at these two responses and say, didn't, didn't Mary respond just the same way, right? Did Mary just kind of say, well, uh, is this really going to happen, you know? There seems to be a, a distinction in, in attitude, though, between Mary's response to Gabriel and Zechariah's response to Gabriel. Zechariah actually responds in doubt that the thing might happen, right? Uh, whereas Mary responds in confusion of how the thing might happen, right? Which is, is a very reasonable question on her part, knowing about what we know about how children come to be, right? Uh, she says, Lord, cool, but what? 
<laughs> right? That's kind of her response, right? And so there is definitely a, a distinction in the way they respond to these things. Um, so what is the reaction um, of Elizabeth's baby when Mary comes to visit her? Yeah, she leaps in the womb, or the baby leaps in the womb, right? And so uh, there, there is already in this, uh, this prenatal existence of, of John the Baptist and of Jesus, right, there's recognition of the Lord's presence there. Um, this is a very side point, right, but it's, this is an interesting pro-life verse in a sense, right? Like they're, they're already persons, right? This is not just uh, little cells floating around that don't mean anything. <coughs> Um, and when Zechariah confirms John's name, what happens? He can speak again, right? All right. So this is just kind of the just some of the basic facts, right, of chapter one. And we could have obviously asked a lot more questions and gotten very detailed. But again, we want to just have an understanding of the narrative, have an understanding of the, the basic facts and information before we start asking other kinds of questions. So let's ask this. What, what is different about the way, we talked about this a little bit, what is different about the way the information of the gospel, this gospel was gathered as opposed to the other gospels? We just kind of chatted about that, so go ahead and read, refresh my mind. Jacob, uh, yes. I think it's also uh, what the angel said in uh, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. I think it's not only revealing God's character, but also, you know, as, he, as uh, these events unfold, it shows that God's plan is going to be different than what we think, you know, that God's not limited by the things that we're limited by and stuff. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something that's also interesting to think about here. So, with Elizabeth's situation, every time, by the way, the scripture mentions 
a woman who's barren, every single time God actually later takes her barrenness away. Like there's not a single instance in Scripture where that's not the case. Which is not exactly a promise. I don't want to bring that idea across that God always takes barrenness away. But it is interesting that uh, everywhere He does directly mention that, like, that condition in a woman that He He takes it away. Um, the other thing that's really interesting here is the nature of Christ's birth, obviously, is very unique, this virgin birth, right, this uh, unique conception. Um, what, what impact might that have, the fact that Jesus is conceived in this way without a human father? What, what might theological implications could that have for us? Any thoughts on that? So this this um, this avoidance of, of the, the typical means of conception uh, seems to seems to indicate that Christ again is um, he's stepping outside of the line of Adam. Uh, in fact, Paul will call Jesus a second Adam. Okay, uh, so this is the beginning of a new humanity. So what's actually interesting between John and Jesus is that you, Jesus will call John the greatest among men, right? of the old kind, you might say, right? And Jesus is starting a, a, a new humanity. Um, and Paul talks about in Ephesians how forever there has been this separation, this dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, um, and, and there's just been these irreconcilable differences. But in Christ, that wall comes down, and the two are made into one new man, one new creation. Um, the scripture will tell us that Jesus is the the firstborn from the dead, that he is the, the first in a, in a whole new line of humanity, basically. And so when we, by faith, trust Christ, we become in Christ rather than in Adam. Right? So all of us, by, by natural birth, are born into Adam's race. Right? But by faith, we're born again into the race of the second Adam of Christ. Um, and so this virgin birth is... Highly significant. I sometimes have heard people talk about the virgin birth like it's just kind of this weird doctrine that doesn't really matter a whole lot. And, and uh, I've never been able to wrap my mind around that kind of thinking about it because this is this is the humanity 2.0 re- reboot. You know, like this is what God's up to. So it's a hugely important important doctrine because it does allow Jesus to be both fully man, being born of the Virgin Mary, but also fully God and sinless. Um, all right, so this, this rhetoric question, right? So Zechariah and Elizabeth both sing songs of praise to God. What place do you think singing has in the Christian life? What about spontaneous praise? And again, I have this, you know, write down your answer. This is, this is how I do it for the kids in my school, but you didn't have to write a 5 to 10 page thing, whatever. But nonetheless, what, what do you think... Um, I always just find it so interesting that they just stop and they praise God and they, and they do it in such a magnificent way. Like, what, what, what place does music have in the life of the church, both in the church Sunday morning setting and in our individual life? I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. And, and I would uh, add to that that it seems like singing adds more of a maybe an emotional component uh, over just speaking and so you know it's a sense in which we are expressing with our whole person you know our worship and our praise and glory to God yeah that's good because uh, you know a lot of times um, 
it seems like in the, the church in general today, right, we, we tend to have these churches that tend to focus more on the emotional side, and we have churches that tend to focus more on the rational, like just you know, exegetical side of things, you know. And, and uh, But God calls all of us to be both about the Word very seriously and, and about actually expressing our love for Him, you know. And, and so song is a good way to do that. Any other thoughts just on this topic about how um, what place this singing has in our lives as Christians? Okay. Sorry. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, every time I read through Luke chapter 1, I'm just struck, you know, by Mary's Magnificat, right, and, and then Zechariah, and, and just, um, I think so often we take God's grace for granted, right? Uh, but I think to myself, you know, when's the last time that I sat down and wrote a, a poem, right, about God's goodness for me, or something like that, you know, or, and, and uh, I don't know, I just, I think we need to be intentionally praising God, you know, we need to make it a habit in our life when, when God does something good in our lives, or even when God does something hard in our lives, right, uh, to respond in praise. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a songbird, right, I'm not saying that, but, but we need to have an attitude that's quick and ready to respond and worship to what God is doing in our lives, and I think we see that example here. Um, did anybody on chapter 1... Have any questions about anything you didn't read in chapter one that you wanted to discuss with the group? So, as a general rule, I think we started doing this on the Wednesday night study. Uh, whenever you're reading scripture, I, I would recommend looking for, for at least three things, right? What's a question you have? Like, oh, I'm not sure how to understand this, you know? Uh, what was your favorite thing? Because this just stood out to me this time, and it was just really cool, right? And then. Um, what was something new to you? You just never remember even seeing that in the text. Because no matter how many times you come to the text of Scripture, I guarantee you, you'll find something new somewhere along the way, right? Um, so anybody have any question or anything that stood out to them in Chapter 1 that you wanted to discuss or, or share <coughs> before we move on to Chapter 2? We've already discussed it, but I think what kind of struck me is, I guess I've missed several times in reading that it wasn't I Yeah. Yeah, and this is why, you know, Luke and Acts uh, often really appeal to those who are into apologetics because Luke is so specific about dates and facts and details and things like that as this kind of investigative journalist approach. Um, it, it offers some very robust uh, things we can point to as far as trying to give an accurate account of what really happened back in the first century. It's good. Anybody else have anything that stood out to them in chapter I think, too, just that, that God uh, has a purpose for everyone, and that sort of comes out in the naming of, of John, and obviously later in Jesus as well. And so just, just to remind us that you know we're not just here on this earth you know, just to do whatever we want to make us happy, but that God has a specific purpose for his people. Good. Yeah, and I skipped over this. I should have mentioned something about it, um, but... You know, it's interesting, so if you go back uh, to the Pentateuch and you see, of course, when uh, you know Aaron is made the first high priest and that his sons after him will be priests and you have the Levites, right? Um, so by the time you get to the first century, there are so many Levites functioning as priests that they don't, they're not there year-round doing their service, right? So, because it te tells us that in Zechariah's time, to be doing his services there at the temple. Um, and then he gets called by Lot to actually go in and offer incense, right? Um, which, from what I understand, this literally could be a once-in-a-lifetime experience for, for him because there are so many different priests that are on at different times in the year, and to be the person that actually gets to go and do the incense offering, that might not have happened more than once for him, right? So it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, again, it might almost read like, it just so happened that, right? It was such a big coincidence that, you know, but, but really, you know, God is just orchestrating all these things in Zechariah's life to bring about this moment where he, he you know, comes into the presence of the Lord and sees this, this angel, and it would have been a very shocking moment. He certainly wasn't expecting that when he went in there. Um, 
right, so as we move into chapter two, uh, the first question, when Jesus was born, who was ruling the Roman Empire and who was uh, currently governing Syria? Right at the beginning of chapter two. Okay. He ru- and he uh, ruled in Rome, by the way, from 27 BC to 14 AD. Um, and his immediate predecessor, right behind him, was Julius Caesar, whom we maybe more famously know. Um, and let's see. And Quirinius was also the governor of Syria at this time. So again, just note, Luke is putting people, places, events on the table for investigative purposes. Uh, What message is proclaimed to the shepherds and by whom? Okay, so we got angels to show up. What is the message they are proclaiming? Okay. So, at first, there's a single angel that shows up, and then he says, Fear not, behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then you have a large group, a host of angels that show up and say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I can't read this passage and not think of Linus. <laughs> I mean, first thing always comes to my mind. But, um, so, yeah, so we'll talk about in a minute what's significant about them showing up to, to this group of people. Uh, but who are, who are the first people to come worship Jesus as Messiah? The shepherds. Okay? And when was Jesus circumcised? What was the, the details on that? The eighth day. Okay. Interesting. Okay. We're going to come back to that in a minute and ask why, why is that so important. Um, when was the infant Jesus presented at the temple? Look at Luke. Okay. So... Luke 2.22 tells us that they waited for the time of their purification, Mary and Jesus, according to the law. Leviticus 12 describes the amount of uh, time one must wait to both, uh, for both circumcision of the male child and also how long until the mother has been purified before she may go to the temple amid the holy things and to make offerings before the Lord for the newborn child. Joseph and Mary strictly observed these commandments. And yeah, you were right. I think it's 40 days. Okay. Um, so what kind of offering do Joseph and Mary give? Verse 24 of Luke 2. And what does this indicate about them according to Leviticus 12? They give the offering four, which was Joseph and Mary meet at the temple when they come to present to the Lord. What figures do they run into there at the temple? Okay. Simeon, who's called righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, according to verse 25. The Lord has told him that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah's coming. Uh, Anna is described as a prophetess and a longtime widow in advanced years. She's 84 years old, who never leaves the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And it's to such as these that God gives a glimpse of his coming salvation to Israel. Um, 
Yeah, okay, I'm going to backtrack and talk about some of these more in just a moment. What, what happens to Jesus at the temple when he's 12? He gets left behind. Not like the Temple Hay book, though. Uh, yeah, Jesus is actually left behind for, uh, for and lost for three days when his family leaves Jerusalem for home. Even the best parents make mistakes. Um, and according to the scripture, does Jesus grow and mature like a normal person? Yes and no. Explain what you mean by that. Uh, I mean, the child grew and became strong. Um, let's see. Oh, there. It's 52. Jesus increased the wisdom of God and man. Yes, he grew like a normal person in age. Bottle physically, and even as he grew in wisdom, it was in the same mechanisms, if you will. But because he was perfect, there was no regression, there was no
Uh, God exalts him to the name above all names, right? Um, and yeah, I think that you know what you and Mark have brought up. You know, the fact that um, God takes great pleasure in uh, taking an unexpected course. I think that that what people would think, right? Because if you uh, if you ask the the wisdom of the world, they would say, well, if God is going to become a man, which, by the way, that sounds crazy, but if God was going to do that, right, surely he would be born into a wealthy family, into a palace somewhere, into a place where he would already have the authority he needs, right, so that he can tell people what to do, and they would believe him and listen to him, and, um, and so, you know, God does the exact opposite of what would be expected here. God places his son into a, a family from a know-nothing town that, that people, I mean, in the Gospel of John, you know, when, when uh, one of the disciples first hears where Jesus is from, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Have you ever seen that town? Right, you know? Um, so he takes the most unexpected route possible. Um, but this is, this is so that people might see uh, this is God in action, right? In the same way that God used a you know, 16-year-old scrawny shepherd boy to slay the giant, right? So that, you know, because if, if Saul had marched out there like he should have, right, um, and, and killed Goliath, people would have said, yeah, the Lord's with us, but man, Saul's a really great fighter. He's just, he's pretty, pretty cool how he did that, right, you know? Um, but when David does it, everybody knows that was not normal, what happened there, <laughs> right, you know? And it's the same kind of situation that the stark contrast brings out the truth of what God is up to. So why would the angels announce the Messiah's birth to a small number of shepherds among the least concerned in society rather than amid more notable people, the Pharisees, the scribes, kings, etc.? Why would he choose them? because many of the, the great and the good in society were unbelieving. Okay. Even though they had access to a lot of the prophecies about the Messiah, they probably still would have been like, either like Herod's response was just threatened and they could try to kill, kill the Messiah. Like, this guy's going to take my throne. Right. Or they were just, some, you know, they, they had all the intellectual knowledge that, okay, we should really, this is a great thing that's going to happen, but we really don't buy it. So we kind of have to push it aside somehow. So it's like God knows that. Not every Pharisee is unbelieving, but on the whole, if you look at the yeah. trial of Jesus, for the most part, they're all like, yeah, let's, let's kill him. Bring him up to the Romans. It's not, so he's going to people who, like, you know, it's like, okay, you rejected me for centuries. I'm going to go to somebody else. Yeah. Paul talks also about how God you know, uses the, the lowly things of this earth to confound the wise. There's sort of a sense of, of humbling as well, you know, by not doing things the way that we would naturally think that things ought to be done. It seems right. like you ought to inform, you know, the elite of society, and then it would sort of trickle down, and God sort of puts that on its head and does the opposite. And to kind of go with the last question about how God came in without names, really. I think the idea of the two Adam, you know, I, I can't say I got scripture back, but the idea that the first Adam had everything at his pleasure. I mean, he, he had it all. You know, and then the covenant of works, he only had to obey one law, whereas the second Adam comes in, he has absolutely nothing. He has nothing to his name, and yet still obey the covenant of works and obedience of the laws and I mean of all people that you think would be trying to find a way to get around it or whatever you know so you have one that has everything and you have one that has nothing and yet you can still obey all the law good thoughts yes I think what we'll see in Luke as this as we continue to read through it there's a theme that's developed very early on that will carry on through, uh, which is God's concern for those who are lowly, who are poor, who are the outsider, right? Uh, 
And so it is amongst a very lowly family that God places his son. And it is to some of the most um, untouchables of society that God makes the announcement, right? So God not only doesn't put his son into some palace somewhere, doesn't, doesn't bring him into the world that way, and he doesn't then send invitations to all the noblemen and all of the you know, people who you would expect to get this kind of announcement, but he brings the good news of salvation to, quite frankly, some of the people who would be the least, least likely that you would think would get that kind of invitation, um, and yet the most ready to receive it, right? As you were saying, I think that you know you see the believing heart of these shepherds. Uh, and although many of the well-to-do in society and even the religious leaders like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right, um, who should have a concern for the poor if they're obeying the law, uh, nonetheless, you know, wouldn't touch these guys with a ten-foot pole probably, right? Uh, but it's, it is to them that God makes this cosmic announcement. It's almost comical when you think about it, right? You imagine just like three guys sitting on a hill, kind of chatting about their day, watching the sheep, you know? And then, boom, there's this huge scene, and this angel's talking to him, and then those, the whole host show up, and, and it's, just, it's just these guys, right? It's just such a, it's such a massive thing that just happened. You got to announce, and it's, this, and it's just these three guys or whatever on a hill just watching the sheep. So it's, it's almost a... It's a divine comedy of a sort, right? You know, that, that God has a sense of humor in a really good way. Um, what might Simeon and Anna represent as far as the state of Israel's spiritual condition? Any thoughts? shepherds, and then you have some some older folks who have been faithful amidst a, a generation that has not been so faithful, perhaps in many ways, um, and, and God blesses them by letting them know and have peace that this is coming about. Um, and, and, and so, I think that there will be times in our life where we will feel very lonely, we'll feel very um, strange amongst the people that we live around as we try to be faithful and, and devoted to the Lord. And I think it's, it's good to have a picture of remembering God is faithful to his faithful. Uh, and I, I think we see a good picture of that here. And I, you know, I think, um, of course, of um, uh, Elijah, right? And he had his moment of, of just panic. But Lord, certainly I'm the only one left. Nobody else is listening to you, you know? And and of course, he says, no, there's, there's a remnant. And, and, and all throughout the history of, of Israel and the church and every age, right, no matter whether it seems to be a height or a low of the spiritual condition of God's people, there's always a faithful remnant. Um, and that's something to be encouraged by because God is always faithful to his people. He 
even when his people as a whole aren't always entirely faithful. Um, so, you know, where is Jesus again? We talked about this a little bit. Where is Jesus found after being lost when he was 12 years old, and why is this so significant? Okay. Yes. Interesting statement, right? Says, didn't you know I'm in my father's house? Right? Obviously, right? <laughs> uh, this whole story is kind of interesting because you think so. How did they not know he's missing for three days? Right? Um, but, but more than likely, I mean, this wasn't a small journey for them to go to the feast. And more than likely, they were with a caravan of friends and family and so on and so forth. And probably it's kind of very, you know, takes a village to raise a child moment right here, you know. And, well, he's probably with cousin so-and-so. And I don't know. What's the you saw? Right, you know? And then he had this moment. They start looking around for him like, oh, boy, we've won it. So, um, and then it takes a while to find him once they actually get back to Jerusalem, you can imagine. But it says that uh, the, the men speaking with Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Um, yeah, this is this is a, a time where Jesus is both showing as a child his inquisitiveness and his desire to know and learn and soak in the Word of God, right? And again, we talk about the dual nature of Christ as being the divine Son of God, both God and man. In his in his humanity, he is just seeking to sit in the presence of God's Word and hear and listen and and maybe even make a few points of his own, right? But um, you see in this the example that Jesus, as even at 12 years old, right, is already righteously fulfilling God's commandments, right? He's already righteously seeking to uh, worship the Lord and to, you know, I don't know how this works. I mean, somebody help me out if they can, right? But like, is he memorizing scripture or does he just know it already? I, you know, like, I, I, like it's just one of those things, right? But but there's, there's this sense when he just wants to sit in his father's house and take it in. What a good example, right? And uh, when his parents do find him and call him, you know, he submissively comes to them, by the way. He's not being disobedient, okay? Some people suggest that too. Well, shouldn't Jesus be ashamed of himself for making his parents worry like that? He was just sitting there listening and talking to the teachers. He probably didn't know his parents left, you know? I, well, maybe he did in his divine nature, but not in his human nature, okay? Anyway. All right, so the, the rhetoric question, the one for us to discuss, kind of a long question. But Luke, in chapters 1 through 3, which we'll get to 3, but emphasizes the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary concerning keeping the Lord's commandments. Concerning the first set in Luke 1, 6, the scripture says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And concerning the second set, they are said to have performed everything according to the law of the Lord. What part does intentional obedience and holy living have to do with God's favor in our life versus God's favor being a pure act of his grace, that which we do not deserve and cannot earn? So if you want to articulate for me right now, what, what is this relationship of faith and obedience, faith and works, right? Um, is, is, is everything that we get from God just his grace and totally undeserved? Or is there some way that he responds to us when we're obedient? What are your thoughts here? I think in the case of these individuals, they are obedient because they already received God's grace, God's saving grace. Okay. So this is a case of the justified person who now seeks to please God. Right. It's not the seeking to be justified. It's because you're justified, you are now seeking to live in obedience. Knowing you're never going to live in complete So it's kind of the opposite of, say, Rome, where you're trying to sort of live in obedience to become justified. Right. It's the complete opposite. You're justified now. You're, and we've been getting, the justified people have been given a new nature. They're regenerated so that they will want to live in obedience to God's I, I think the other thought that goes along with that too is is that 
God has given us the Christian life and to walk in obedience because that's what's good for us. That's, that's a blessed life. And so when we step out of that, we don't lose his favor, but he continues to show his mercy by disciplining us to bring us back to that path that we might enjoy his blessings, you know, not walking in sin and, and incurring the consequences of those things as well. So while we might, you know, mistaken that to think that God's now, I'm not a favor with God, that's not really true. He couldn't love us more than when he disciplines us. So let me ask this. So, I mean, you have... Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who, you know, again, the statement was that they uh, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What, what does that mean, to walk blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord? I mean, that, that's, I mean you, if you just isolate that phrase, right, that sounds pretty impressive, right? Especially when you start thinking about being in the, the Old Covenant era and all of the, the 613 commands, right, you know, of the Old Testament, uh, of the law. How, how does one come to perfectly obey all of these things? Like, it almost sounds like they're doing. What do you, what do you think that means in their case? Okay. Okay. So living in a, a penitent lifestyle, right? And, you know, the, the action of sacrifice but also as a salt that you want to Godly person living out the godly life. You're fitting my Wesleyan theology right now. I don't think you hold that. Theology should be offended. Yeah. Yeah, you know, walking righteous and blameless before the Lord does not mean being sin- sinless, right? Coming to a point of absolute sinlessness. Um, but there are people that deal with their sin rightly, right? There are people that are re- repentant of their sin and have also the right outward actions in response to their inward repentance, right? You know? Um, and I think, it's, I think it's notable that, and I absolutely agree, that you know, anything we do apart from faith is sin, and, and it's only by grace that we do anything good or right towards God. And yet, you know, we also know that, if we're honest, within the church of people who are genuinely born again and redeemed, you know, you sometimes still see some Christians like, man, they just they walk more faithfully than I do. Like, I need to, be, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, man, I need to just, I need to be more with the Lord than, and they're a good example for me to be around, right? You know? And, and it, it does seem like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary are kind of those kind of people, right? That they're very careful, and, and, and not in a showy way, but just in a faithful way, to keep God's commandments. Because um, you know, Luke is very clear to point out that, you know, they follow the Levitical law to a T as far as Jesus' circumcision and as far as making the right offering at the right time. And, and even though they were poor and they couldn't offer the nicer sacrifice, right, they still did what was required of them by the law faithfully. Um, and so it, it, there is a sense in which um, how this works out with God's sovereignty and, and whatever level of freedom we want to talk about we have, right, okay, then there's a sense in which God rewards faithfulness, right? God didn't put his son or his greatest prophet among men in believing families that were a little bit loose on things. You know what I mean? And, and so... You know, we want the fullest of, of God's uh, favor in our life. We obviously have his grace. We already have his forgiveness, and we, that extends to our, our faults and sins that we scrape every day, right? But, but um, you know, there is something to holy living, and there is something to God doing wonderful things in 
the lives of those who seek diligently to follow him daily. There is something about that being faithful in the small things, right? So I think that's a good reminder for us as well. As we kind of close today. So any thoughts generally on Luke 1 or 2? Anything that you wanted to mention? Question you might have had. I'm not going to close with a verse from Ephesians that you could be tempted. So, very familiar. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but then I'm going to quote 10, which you can drop off. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've heard somebody talk about this as like a, if you made this a math equation, right? Some people try to say it's faith plus works equals salvation. But that's wrong, right? It's responding in God's grace by faith equals salvation plus works, right? Uh, And I think that's a good way to think of it. We have been saved to holy living. We have been saved to a life of faithful obedience and works and doing good to our fellow neighbor, right? Uh, That's not the means by which we are saved, but never should we think that we are saved to not ever having to obey if we're just easy believism or anything like that. So, all right, so make sure uh, we have Luke week two. I'll put that over here, but make sure you grab one of these on the way out or it's on the website and you can print off copy as well that way. Um, Just encourage you to spend time reading over chapters three and four this next week, doing this either individually as a family and just really dwelling on it and thinking on it. And I think we'll have another rich conversation next time. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have. We ask that you would bless the rest of our time together in this service. Pray you be with Pastor Franks and that you would speak powerfully through him as he proclaims your word, that your word would penetrate our hearts, Lord, and that you would speak to us and draw us closer to you. Help us to see sin in our lives and turn from it and to pursue a life of holiness pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.